It's a big question. Everyone wants to know the answer to that question. Everyone wants to know what happens when we die. Everyone has an answer for that question, too. Now, it might be, I don't know, but that's an answer, too. Some people answer that question and say, we just die, right? We become warm food, pushing up daisies. That's it. That's all that happens. We're dead, and we just decompose in the ground, or our bodies are burned up, and that's the end of whatever it meant to be us. Whatever it meant to be a person, that's just, that's just gone. Other people answer that question saying, we become a part of the universal spirit, right? That everything's one, that we're all, we're all just sort of a part of this thing. We become a greater part of that, that oneness, just absorbed into this oneness. Some people say we're reincarnated. And if we're really good, if we had a good little, a good little run in this life, then we'll be reincarnated as maybe something better, right? Have better things. And if we didn't do so hot, then, you know, we could expect to go down a peck. I have to be somebody's cat or something, I, you know. The reality is most people don't say, I don't know. They've got some idea. Most people have some idea about what happens after we die, but no one really wants to talk about it for very long. They don't want to dwell on it. They don't want to think about that too long. We all do, though, just want to think it'll all work out somehow. That somehow, some way, it'll all be okay. That whatever happens, it'll be good. Whatever we believe happens after we die, we hope. That's the idea. Everyone hopes it'll be just fine. But we need to think about that hope carefully, don't we? Do you have any certainty about what you're hoping will happen to you when you die? Do you have any reason to believe God will accept you. These verses show us there's going to be a crossroads for us, whether we have hope or not, whether we've thought about it or not, whether we have an answer to the question or we just say, I don't know. There's a crossroads for us. So let's read these verses now in Hebrews chapter 9, reading the rest of the chapter, verses 23 through 28. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Lord God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we know it is not intelligence or the persuasive arguments of men that convince us of our sin and our need of a Redeemer. We know, Lord, it is the gospel that is the power of salvation to those who believe. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. God, I pray that you would be pleased to use me, a fallible man, to preach truth, to preach this infallible word you have gifted us with. Without it, all of us are hopeless. I'm powerless to communicate what only your Holy Spirit can. So I pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is a weird thing, right? You talk to people and they say things like, I hope I get into the college I want. Uh, I, I hope I get that promotion at work. Parents say, I hope my kids turn out all right. You know? And that's all right. We have those kinds of hopes. You know, I hope I live long enough to see my grandchildren. Sincerely, I hope that. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not the kind of hope we talk about as Christians when it comes to eternity, when it comes to eternal matters. That's not the hope we mean when we talk about life after death. We don't hope we're saved and God will accept us when we die. We have hope because we know we have been accepted by him. So when it comes to hoping all things work out in our favor when we die, when it comes to the kind of hope we have after death, it's not just whether we have hope, but whether our hope is real. Whether what we have hoped in is real. Because we, we can have hope it'll work out, or we can have hope that it has worked out. You see that difference? One's a little bit of a gamble. Wouldn't, I wouldn't stay there for long if I were you. The other one is an assurance. Sure, you're waiting on it, but that waiting has a name, it's called hoping. That's the kind of hope the author wants his audience to have. That's the kind of hope that God wants Christians to have. That's the kind of hope that God wants you here this morning to have as we're looking at these verses. The author, if you remember, keeps pointing to Christ continually as the better everything. Right, Hadn't he been doing that? You name it, Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book. He's gone on and on about that and really hammered down hard on this idea of him being a better high priest specifically and a, offering a better sacrifice than what was offered in the Old Covenant. He's been leveraging everything they know about the Old Testament sacrificial system under the Old Covenant and showing how Christ is the fulfillment of all those things, right? That, that, that Christ is the point of all those things, the thing that all those things pointed to. And so if we're going to hang our hope on anything after death, our hope has to be hung on his death. His sacrifice is what gives anyone hope things will be all right when we die. And we're gonna. All of us. We see that in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's his death 
that gives us hope at our death. His sacrifice that gives us hope. That's the main idea of these verses in the sermon this morning. And here's what he says about his sacrifice in these verses that bolsters our confidence and gives us that hope. Okay? The place of his sacrifice is significant. The perfection of his sacrifice, the quality of it, and the permanence of his sacrifice. Those will be your three points this morning. Okay, so place. But because Jesus offered his sacrifice in the true holy of holies, in the very presence of God in the heavenly places, we know it has been accepted by God and we have hope in the life to come. Okay, we'll get into that. The perfection of his sacrifice. Because Jesus offered himself, we know his blood was effectual for the forgiveness of sins. It actually atones for the sins of his people and reconciles us to God so we can have hope in the life to come. And then the permanence of it, because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't something that needed to be repeated over and 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 over again. We know everything needed to be accomplished to secure our redemption to accomplish our redemption and hope in the life to come has already been completed. And it's never to be repeated. All right? So place, perfection, permanence. Let's get into place a little bit more. Verse 23 starts, picking, starts out picking up where we left off last week. About all the blood and how everything was purified in blood and how without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. That was verse 22 where we left off. And we said, didn't we? It's always been about the blood. It was never not about the blood. It's always been about the blood. In the Old Testament and in the New. The Old Covenant was blood. The New Covenant is blood. The wages of sin is death. Nothing's changed. The gory picture in the Old Testament sacrificial system, again, preached separation from God and wrath due for sin. And that bloodbath, remember, that bloodbath of slaughtered animals and worship preached, behold, the effects of sin. The cross says the same thing. I said that too. Behold, the effects of sin. Death, judgment, blood, okay? But the cross says more. It says, behold, the love of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Where that blood was offered... That place is significant, okay? Jesus went somewhere to be in the presence of God for us, didn't he? I don't know if this has crossed your mind at all as we've talked about this in recent weeks, okay? But Jesus never went into the Holy of Holies, right? That earthly tent and the tabernacle, you know, the first, second curtain thing, all that stuff. He never went back there. You realize that? Have you thought about that at all? As we've talked about him being the high priest and what high priest did, Jesus didn't do that. His blood was not sprinkled in there. Wasn't necessary. All of that was necessary in the old arrangement, the author says in verse 23, but those were the copies of the heavenly things. Those things in the tabernacle that represented something else. Those things in the tabernacle represented the real thing, the real place, the real presence of God in the real throne room of heaven. Jesus offered himself there. 
His blood atonement was presented there, not into holy places made with hands, verse 24, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ entered into a better place. The place of his sacrifice matters for our hope and life after death. That's significant. He appeared in the actual presence of God and applied his blood in the real throne room in heaven so that God would see his sacrifice and actually forgive us for our sins. Christ entered heaven itself, not the tent that represented it. Okay, good. Heard that before. Heard it again today. Good reminder. Think I'm getting it. But what's it look like? You know? Sometimes you just stop and, and think, what's that look like? Throne room of heaven stuff? The real throne room of heaven where Jesus' sacrifice for our sin was accepted by God? What's that like? That's a fun question, right? Well, let's look. It's not a secret. Yeah? We, it, we can't really wrap our minds around it completely, but it's not like we don't at least get a description. If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn with me there. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at a few verses. Take a minute here. A little detour. John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created." <coughs> I didn't do a count. I'm not going to. How many times did you get living? How many, time, how many times did that word appear? This is the living throne room of the true and living God. That's where your Savior's blood was presented. That's where. Human vocabulary fails to capture the glory of heaven and God's presence. But we do at least get John's description here, right? He's doing his best. I mean, how would you do, right? How would you do just putting into words what no man has ever seen and what is not of this world? 
This is a description of the presence of the glory of God, and that's important because that's what the copies and shadows represent. And it's where Christ's sacrifice was accepted by God. It communicates to us, this is the better place. Bar none, this is the better place. The place the earthly tent represented imperfectly. And Jesus didn't need to go into the imperfect earthly tent. Jesus went to where no man had gone before and the very presence in the living throne room of the living God. And he offered his sacrifice for the sins of his people there. Okay, now that move into point number two, the perfection of his sacrifice. Jesus offered himself there. He offered himself there, offered his own blood, better blood. We talked about this some last week, and that's important to reemphasize here as we talk about hope and life after death. We can't hang our hope on the blood of animals. Can't do that. That won't work. That can't atone for the sins of human beings. Now, we know it did do a good job of reminding God's people their sin required blood. Got that point across very clear. It did do a very good job of keeping this idea of our need for atonement top of mind, but it couldn't get the job done. The priests had to keep doing it. Look there at the contrast between Jesus and the earthly high priest in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself, that is Jesus, repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not of his own. Now, two things that you should be alerted to there in, in those verses. First, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. And two, even had the high priest offered his own blood, that wouldn't work either. You getting that? You know, unpack that for a minute. What was required to atone for the sins of human beings was human blood. Okay? So the blood of goat, excuse me, the blood of bulls and goats, say that ten times fast. The blood of bulls and goats could not. It just wasn't sufficient. That makes sense, right? Well, why couldn't the high priest offer his own blood? Right? This is God's guy, right? This is the dude set apart for the tax, task, and he's human. Well, because his blood couldn't atone for his own sin, much less anybody else's. We require a blood of infinite worth, innocent human blood, blood of a sinless man. So that last week too, one not born of Adam, one not born uh, with the curse of sin on him. And we think, well, well, that's impossible. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that, don't we? Uh, you know, every, every human being that's ever lived, we're, we're born into sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you're absolutely right, but God's arm is not so short that it cannot save he came and took on flesh himself, took to himself a human nature, being born of a virgin and living a sinless life. So what we have to atone for sin is perfect human blood, and it is divine. That's why his sacrifice is perfect. That's why it's acceptable to God. That's why it can atone for the sins of many. It says there, verse 28. His righteousness wasn't just enough to to save one soul, but the souls of many. Those that the Father had, had given him as a sacrifice for. 
set him apart to that task before the foundation of the world. You. Animal blood couldn't do that. And even if the high priest had offered his own blood, it couldn't do it either. Christ's sacrifice was perfect and effectual for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. So the quality of his sacrifice matters. Place matters. The quality matters. The perfection of it. It matters to our hope of life after death. He put away sin, it says, by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 26. Now I want to point something out here in that same verse about him not offering himself repeatedly. Right? It says, for then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. I know we probably all have friends who are Roman Catholics. And loving our Roman Catholic friends looks more like warning them of their rejection of that once-for-all sacrifice than pretending they have not rejected it. I realize many of them don't even know what their religion truly teaches. I get that. I've talked with lots of those. But I think you should know so that you know how to love them enough to tell them. Okay? This isn't pick on a Catholic day. And do you realize that Reformation Day is in a couple days, and this seems all the more fitting in light of that fact? But truly, there is a reason we had a Reformation. There's a reason we're Protestants and not Roman Catholics. It's because they get the gospel wrong. That's not a minor point of disagreement. That's not just differing opinions. It's the difference between life or death. It has eternal consequences. Our hope of life after death depends on that truth of the gospel. In the Roman Catholic Mass, I'm not sure if you know this, but a, pre, a priest offers a re-sacrifice of Christ in the Lord's Supper. That's what they're doing. That's, that's what they believe that they're doing. Re-sacrificing Christ again as often as it's offered. It's offered up as a sacrifice again and again for the forgiveness of sins. It's human priests offering up what cannot save again and again in an earthly tent. Made with human hands. That's not a sacrifice that saves. That's not the one offered in a better place and accepted by God in the heavenly places. And what the Roman Catholic Mass says the Lord's Supper is, is the actual physical body and blood of Christ being offered up for sins again. That the bread and the wine turn into the physical body and blood of Christ. That's problematic. That confuses the divine and human natures of Jesus. His physical body can only be in one place at a time. And we know where he is, seated at the right hand of Father in heaven. He's in heaven. But in the Roman Catholic Mass, his body is located wherever they say it is. Wherever that re-sacrifice for sin is being offered again and again. Jesus is one person, okay, we've talked about this before, with two distinct natures, human and divine. And you can't separate those two natures. They belong to the one same person. 
Now, why is that important? Isn't that just theology nerd stuff to argue over and bicker about? Isn't that something that just causes division? I mean, who cares if that's what they think they're doing in the Lord's Supper? Here's why. Because confusing Christ's two natures gets you a Savior who is neither truly human nor truly divine, and a Jesus who is not both truly human and truly divine cannot save you. The quality of his sacrifice matters. Because Jesus is both God and man, both human and divine, his sacrifice is perfect. And because it's perfect, it need not be repeated, not ever. He appeared once for all to put away sin, offered once. It is finished. The quality of that sacrifice matters. It was perfect and it was permanent. Getting into the last point, the permanence of his sacrifice. He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, offered up once to bear the sins of many. That has a permanent ring to it, doesn't it? That sounds like permanence language, like there's nothing left to do. The world gives us a lot to do, doesn't it? Don't you get the sense in this life our work is never done? The list just, there's always something more to do. Like, like, a, like a barrel that has no bottom, right? I think I said something about this before in a sermon. I'm famous for this, y'all. This is, this is me just, I, 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 I have the temptation, like I wake up every day, and my job by the end of the day before I rest at night is to get to the bottom of this barrel. Imagine a barrel filled with sand. And I frantically start scooping out by handfuls all the sand. And my, my goal is to get to the bottom of the barrel so I don't have to dig any more sand. But the barrel has no bottom. There's a stress and anxiety to that that's part of life, isn't there? Chasing the bottom of the barrel that doesn't exist. There's always something more left to do. And the world reminds us of it all the time. But what the gospel tells us is that the most important thing that had to get done is done. It is finished. That's a load off. The author really drives this point home of not repeatedly, but once to bear the sins of many. Why does that matter? Well, because at the end of that inescapable and seemingly endless to-do list, there's death and there's judgment. Those are two things every human being can count on. You will die, and when you do, you will face judgment. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, he says, verse 27. People don't want to talk about that. You know, they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to think about that. In fact, we'll come up with lots of things. We'll invent all kinds of things to keep us from talking about that. We'll talk about anything else. Because we like to pretend those things aren't true. Right? We, we all know we'll die one day, but we like to pretend it's not true. We cling to our youth as tightly as we can, even though every day it's just slipping through our fingers and we can't hold on but we cling to it anyway. 
And we justify our imperfections, you know, talking about the judgment piece. We justify our imperfections, right? And we say, nobody's perfect, you know? As long as there's a, a Hitler, there's hell with him in it. But not me, because I'm not as bad as that guy. We avoid those truths, death and judgment. But those are two things that are waiting for everyone. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Pretend it's not true? You can try that. You can claim, I don't know, right? I'm on the fence. That's a position too. I don't know is a decision. Not having your mind made up is having it made up. I'm rejecting the only means I have of being reconciled to the God that made me and who will judge me one day. The fence is a position too. What are you going to do when you die and stand before a holy and righteous judge? How will you endure that? Can't claim ignorance. The gospel says Jesus has done it all for me. If you're asked why you should be accepted in, you can say, I'm here with him. Don't look at me. Don't ask me. I don't have a ticket. I don't have a resume. I have nothing but Christ and him crucified. God says, that's enough. Too many people hang their hope on themselves, right? On that resume. On a... On a, on a false God of their own imagination. Don't people often imagine God as unjust? Well, I don't like to think about God as judge, right? I'd like to think that God would just see all of my sin and crimes against other people, the way that I have hated people, the things that I have looked at, thought about, I hope no one ever knows. And he knows, and I hope he'll just let it slide. That's an unjust God. That is a God of your own imagination. A God that does not punish sin. I had a conversation with my aunt this past week, and I don't mind bringing this up because I, um, I doubt she'll, she'll hear the sermon. If she does, praise the Lord. I love my aunt. And we had some really good and fruitful uh, conversations this past week when they visited, not without some, some friction. But in my conversations with her, I asked her hard questions these life or death sort of questions, these life after death questions. We had good conversations, and I'm, I'm thrilled that she's willing to have them, you know? She didn't just shut down. People do that. You had that happen? That's the worst thing that could happen. You can call me names all day long. Yell! Show your teeth! That's fine. Let's just keep the, the, the ball going. Don't shut down, right? And she didn't. She didn't shut down. We kept going. It was a little spar. It's good. It was in love. But people do. They shut down. People don't like thinking about these things, talking about them. I praise God that my aunt was open to having these conversations. But anyway, she would say she's a Christian. 
You know who told her that? The Roman Catholic Church. Because they decide. She would say she's a Christian, but when asked about her hope in life after death, she generally will say something like, I like to think that God will see I was a good person and that nobody's perfect. And I tried my best to be a decent human being and to, to help others. That's not going to fly. Because first of all, no, you didn't. And second of all, that God doesn't exist. None of us is as good as we think we are, and God is more holy and more just than any of us care to admit that he is. And judgment is coming. So what are you going to do about it? That's where religions come in. And there are only two. You've heard me say this before. There's the religion of human achievement, and there are many. And there's the religion of divine accomplishment, and there is but one. The religion of human achievement, which is every other religion that exists, has ever and will ever, lays out an obstacle course back to God. Now, what they get right is that there is some separation, some, some distance that exists between the human and the divine. What they get wrong is the way back. And it's a life or death issue. Christianity is the only religion of divine accomplishment that says, yes, you require reconciliation with the God who made you, and it is not possible. It's not anything that any human being can achieve. We're not capable of it. God had to do it for us, and he did it in the person of Jesus Christ. The effects of his atonement are permanent It cannot be improved upon. It's been done and there's nothing left to do but to love him and to obey him out of love and gratitude out of his, for his sacrifice for us. Now here's what's fun and why this matters as we talk about hope and the permanence of his sacrifice mattering to that hope. What's, what's true of Jesus is true of you. What's true of Jesus it's true of you. Not as divinity, of course, right? We're not divine because he's divine. Don't go there, okay? But by faith in him, what's true of his righteousness as a man is true of you. And what's true about his death to sin is true of you. What's true about his perfect life and his atoning death is true of you. God expects perfect righteousness. Jesus did it. God expects death for sin. Jesus did that too. He did it for you. And because he did, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness, not your sin, his righteousness credited to your account. He sees you have already died to sin because Jesus died for your sin. There's no more punishment. There's no more of God's justice that needs to be meted out. What'd you do to earn that? Nothing. 
He did it all from A to Z. He accomplished it. Why? Because he loves you. Why? I don't know. Ask him when you get there. I'm sure his answer will be something like, for my own glory, my child. Because Jesus' perfect sacrifice was offered where it mattered, in the true heavenly places, it was acceptable by God. It was accepted there. And because it was accepted by God, it's permanent. It's a done deal. Your life is wrapped up in the death of Christ, which cannot be repeated. Your life after death is certain because of that. You can have a certain kind of hope. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Listen, okay, for those of you just checked out, shuffling papers in the pews, I know the kids are getting edgy and everything else. Listen to me, don't miss this, okay? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. So shall you. What's true of Jesus is true of you. You want hope? Here it is. God would have to reject Jesus' sacrifice to reject you. He would have to reject Jesus to reject you. And that's never going to happen. Your hope is certain. The Heidelberg Catechism, the same one we're, we're using each week as we're breaking down the Apostles' Creed, right? Like Foster mentioned, we want to take a minute and kind of unravel these points, these things that we're confessing together that the church has believed for thousands of years. Like we, we're connected to that, and we want to know what we mean when we say it. Well, that same catechism that we're using uh, for that aim, the first question of it says this, what's your only hope in life and death? Isn't that a great question? Here's how it answers it. That I am not my own. But I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's good hope. It's good news. I've got more good news for you this morning. Jesus is coming back for us. Verse 28. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin. Why? Because he's already dealt with it. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those eagerly waiting for him. There's something to that, isn't there? Those Christ saves 
are those eagerly awaiting. So are you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Because there's plenty of people who aren't, right? They're hoping he's not coming. They're hoping that, that death and judgment stuff, that that's not for real, but it is. I'd encourage you to think about that and talk about that in your community groups this afternoon. Again, that's something that most people don't like talking about. We'll find ways to talk about something else. People don't like this eternity stuff, death, judgment, yada, yada. There's how it all work out in the end. Well, you sure? Because God says you can be. So we get to talk about those things as Christians. They don't have to be frightening to us. It's, it's refreshing. And it's revealing, right? Because we can and we should ask ourselves things like, where is my heart today? Yeah? Where is my heart today? Would I want Jesus to come back this afternoon? Would he find me faithful? Would it be well with my soul? Sometimes what can keep those who are indeed truly born again from eagerly awaiting him as we should is our love affair with particular sins. You may could talk about that in your community groups. You know, see, the enemy wants us to barter with sin. You know, it's easy when you've been a Christian for a while, you just kind of get a little bit desensitized to some things, and the world will do that to you, right? Think back on the Proverbs thing. Do not take counsel from fools. There's such a thing as unwise counsel competing for your attention, for your devotion, for your desires, for your family. Okay? Reject the counsel of fools. But what the enemy wants us to do is to barter with sin. God wants us to put it to death. There's a permanence to the way God wants us to deal with sin because there's a permanence to the way he has dealt with it. He sent his son to die for it once and for all. The permanence of a sacrifice gives us hope and it should move us also to a greater desire to put sin to death in our own lives. So as we finish talking about life after death, we're reminded the whole message of the gospel is life after death, isn't it? You know, you want a three-word synopsis of the gospel? Life after death. Spring after winter. Sunshine and a rainbow after the storm. We're reminded the grave is not our final destination. We're going to do a whole lot more living on the other side of that grave than we do on this one. And those who have died with Christ, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, whose sins have been finally and fully atoned for on the cross, will spend all of eternity resting securely with Him who bore our penalty for us. The certainty of that future hope gives us hope in the present, doesn't it? Hope that doesn't flinch at evil or even fear whatever life may throw at us. Because if our lives are wrapped up in a death 
what can death do to us? Nothing. Let's pray.